Have you heard of Anjali Mulchandani? All right, one season is ending, another season is starting, and that season is summer, and summer brings with it its own set of joys. We want to be a part of that change, and I think that's a reason why a lot of students want to be engineers. We have so much technology. How have we not solved this problem? She is a professor at the University of New Mexico in Civil, Construction, and Environmental Engineering. I think Anjali is awesome because she is always reaching higher and working intensely to help bring out the best in the people around her. I see this specifically when she connects people through jobs, outreach, and professional development meetings. In this episode, I ask Anjali about UNM's Grand Challenges program, her research in atmospheric water harvesting, and her philosophy on education. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Thank you so much for being my first podcast guest. This is incredibly exciting. I'm excited to be here. I've been following your podcast journey through so many different versions. And so it's fun to see you kind of go independent and create this for yourself. Absolutely. So my first thing that I really did that you're aware of is the Riparian Restoration podcast that I did for Grand Challenges. So how is Grand Challenges going? Oh, goodness. Grand Challenges has been amazing. So a little bit of context. At the University of New Mexico, we have a Grand Challenges program. And this is essentially the president of UNM wanted to invest money in large challenges that require interdisciplinary teams. So people of different backgrounds all come together to solve these challenges. And in its first iteration, there were three grand challenges. There was sustainable water resources, which I was a part of and Jamie was a part of. There was substance use and there was healthy aging. So as part of the Sustainable Water Resources Grand Challenge, we wanted to think about how we could expand our team. And one way was to get undergraduates to come in and interview faculty members and learn about their research and create communications projects out of them. So Jamie created a podcast on riparian restoration. She interviewed several folks and she tied it all together into this awesome episode So it's really cool just to kind of see her in that first iteration, and now we're in our second-year cohort, and just the types of projects that were created were so creative. My goodness. Yes. Are you planning on continuing that next year? Yes. 100% yes. We've got some really cool ideas. We've got some additional funding so we can expand the program And I am excited to see what happens next. That's awesome. What inspired you to be a part of that Grand Challenges and Sustainable Water Resources Communication Project? (laughs) Well, what inspired me? So I have a degree in my undergraduate is in civil engineering and then my master's and Ph.D. are in environmental engineering. And I had always been approaching our water challenges from a purely engineering perspective. And sometimes that's called the technocratic approach, where you're only thinking of technology. 
And I realized somewhere along the way that technology is not the only solution, that there are other perspectives that need to be brought in if you really want to make big change in the world. You need social science, you need humanities, you need biology, you need chemistry, you need the lawyers and the politicians and the economists. Everybody needs to come together to really think about why we haven't solved these water challenges. I think this because there's always this statistic of 2 billion people across the globe lack access to safe sanitation and water. And I've always wondered, we have so much technology, how have we not solved this problem? On the one hand, there's tons of technology. On the other hand, there's people like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that are pouring millions of dollars into the water crisis. How have we not solved water yet? And it took me coming to UNM and joining the Grand Challenges to realize that it is a problem that is so, so complex. There are so many different factors that relate to why every single person lacks the basic human right to safe, sustainable water. And a lot of that is not the technology doesn't exist. I mean, yes, the technology exists. We know how to clean our water. It's more so how do we get technologies to people? Are these things that people are going to want in their communities? Do they have the ability to maintain said technology once the people who brought it leave. And that's also just a very top-down approach, really. It shouldn't be that, oh, I'm a savior walking in with a technology, here you go, bye. No. I really realized through my time being here is that we have to kind of come to a solution together with communities. We have to co-create knowledge and we have to co-create solutions. And if I just sit in my ivory tower of academia spewing out ideas, I will never really understand what is needed outside of these four walls. So I think it's been a humbling experience for me to be here. Awesome. You mentioned that it's important to have people of all different backgrounds, not just engineering. Why is that important? Why is it important to have people of different backgrounds? I think it kind of comes to this idea of a diversity of perspectives. We all don't have the same lived experience. I may be shorter than you. I may not be as fast of a runner as you. And we can understand that difference. So we can kind of use that analogy to now think about we all don't have the same way of approaching a problem. And that makes it really fun when we all come at a problem from different perspectives. I think that oftentimes we tend to hire or keep people around us who are similar to us. And I think that does us a disservice because then we're never really growing and learning from one another and being challenged because really the only way to push boundaries is to challenge the system. Cool. What is your goal for students to come out of the Grand Challenges in Sustainable Water Resources Communication Project with? What is my goal? I would say my goal has multiple dimensions. 
One is to empower young, excited students, to give them the resources that they need to thrive and then let them come up with something independently on their own. My other goal is to increase the visibility of work done at UNM. A third goal is to show just how connected all these interdisciplinary fields are. I think oftentimes I initially naively thought engineering and social science had nothing to do with one another, and now I realize, no, they have everything to do with one another. And to be able to train students from an earlier time frame or an earlier part in their careers that they are not the only ones solving problems is important because I came out the end of all of my degrees not realizing how important it was to have all these other perspectives sitting around the table. Or maybe I knew it was important, I just had no idea how to have a dialogue with them. And I think this program, I hope, will help students learn from one another. In this program, we usually have cohorts of 10 to 12 undergraduate students. Each student comes from a different major, and the students meet together weekly to discuss the projects that they're working on. So you could have a student who is majoring in economics and has a mentor in econ, and you could have a student who's majoring in environmental science, and then you could have a student majoring in environmental engineering. And the three of them would come together once a week to update one another on their projects, and they would learn about how we're all trying to solve the same big picture grand challenge, but we all have such different perspectives. And maybe by listening to one another, we can incorporate ideas from another field into the projects that we're working on. That's definitely really cool. Speaking of young and excited students, you're teaching, planning to teach the civil engineering design course for freshmen this coming fall. What is one of your primary goals as you teach that? And how do you plan to go about making that a reality? I was so excited to teach freshmen. I got my start in teaching at the K-12 level. I wanted to become a university professor one day, and I was looking for teaching opportunities to figure out if I even enjoyed it. And I didn't have the GPA that was needed to be a peer mentor for college students. So I found an opportunity to teach K-12, and I loved it. I love teaching K-12 because there was a lot of creativity and there was a lot of freedom and there was a lot of acceptance of, yeah, that that's a good idea. Let's keep rolling with it. Then I started to notice how different K-12 education was from university education. In university education, we sit everyone down in these giant lecture halls and you're expected to listen for 50 minutes or an hour and a half and take notes. And we almost scrape the creativity out of you. And I wanted to be a part of fixing that translation piece between graduating high school and being so excited to be an engineer and then when you get to your third or fourth year of engineering, just being like, oh my gosh, what did I do? This is such a boring field. I want to 
get freshmen excited about engineering and find the pieces of high school that were still exciting and get them ready to be at the senior level of an undergraduate profession where they're taking those real engineering courses. So some of my ideas are to bring back hands-on learning, to bring back creativity, to do the things that were fun when you were a fifth grader, but now think about it with a little bit more perspective about like, how would an engineer approach this? So we're civil engineers. Some ideas are to build bridges with marshmallows or gumdrops and toothpicks. You could also build bridges with pasta and marshmallows. And you can start to think about structures and shapes and loads that you can carry, but you're playing with things. And I think that play helps kind of trigger a part of your brain that we've almost forgotten, that idea of being a kid and having fun, because engineering should be fun. So that's just one of the ideas, and I'm excited to see what else happens. The other thing that I realized that I wanted to do was I wanted to bring our senior level undergrads into the freshman class. I want to kind of create this mentorship program where our juniors and seniors can talk to the freshmen, get them excited, get them motivated, help them out, and also kind of help design some of these activities. Now that you're taking senior design or now that you're taking transportation or now that you're taking environmental engineering, what do you wish you knew? Or can we come up with a basic hands-on activity or demo that explains that concept that you learned as a junior, but introduce it to the freshmen to tell them you're going to get here in time if you stick with this major and you get through calculus and you get through physics and you get through chemistry, I promise you, you're going to get to the fun stuff of designing pipes and pumps and figuring out how to clean environmental contamination. That excites me so much. Come teach with me. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so how did you end up at UNM from moving from K-12 to UNM? And how has UNM changed perhaps your perspective and how you approach things? What a good question. So I did K-12 work while I was a student. So as an undergrad, I did after-school K-12 programming. So every Friday, we would go out to local elementary, middle, or high schools to teach kids about science and engineering. Through that process, I learned about curriculum design in a very different way. It was like, how do you teach this lesson within 30 to 40 minutes, including cleanup, including classroom management? Then as a graduate student, I went to Arizona State University, and I again did more K-12 teaching for the first two years. After that, I transitioned to teaching high school teachers, which was a very different perspective because now you've got the amazing teachers who are in the room every day and thinking through their process. What materials do you have on hand? What topics are you teaching? What types of students do you have? And kind of working alongside them to see how can we incorporate these new cutting-edge research and scientific topics back into your classroom. After that, I started teaching undergrads while I was a grad student, so TAing and then teaching my own course over the summer. 
and kind of seeing some of the connections or what I could now bring from the K-12 or high school class into that junior, senior level class. And then I landed a job at UNM to teach undergrads and grad students and do research with them. And that has also been a lot of fun because I can kind of think about those elements of fun and play and conversation and co-creating knowledge and bring those into the classroom. So I'll tell you about one of my favorite activities that I run in the class. This is something that I do in my senior and grad level sustainable engineering course. I run a mock United Nations climate summit. In this activity, everybody role plays a delegation to the United Nations where you talk about climate policy and you debate and you debate and you debate and you decide what percent of greenhouse gas emissions your country is going to cut by a certain year and how much money you want to put into the global climate fund or if you're a developing nation, how much money you're requesting from wealthier countries like the U.S. and the EU to help build green technologies in your country so that you don't have to rely upon coal. It is so fascinating to bring that element of fun into a senior grad level class, just to let students free, to be creative, to be like, if you were in charge of the world, how would you fix climate change tomorrow? It is amazing how perspectives shift over the course of running that exercise because you have to role play a delegation or a country whose perspective you may not agree with. And you then realize where people are coming from. You also can realize that, sure, I could maybe cut greenhouse gas emissions by 20% by 2035, but that's a theory and that's an idea. What it's going to take to make that reality is money and technology and buy-in and policy. And that's way, way harder to solve. So I think that I want to figure out how to build that activity a little bit further, maybe bring that into the freshman class to see how freshmen deal with it versus four years later when you're a senior, do you have the same ideas or different ideas? And how can we actually not immobilize, but empower our younger students to really be a part of the change. A lot of our students are invested and interested in climate and the environment. And we're growing up during a time of climate change being on the news every single day. And we feel the impacts here. My goodness. We feel warming. We feel cooling. We feel increased intensity of storms, of wildfires, and we want to be a part of that change. And I think that's a reason why a lot of students want to be engineers. But it's important for us to understand what it takes to really make that change. And I think that kind of comes back around to that Grand Challenge Fellowship of you can't just make change with just policy. You can't just make change with just money. You can't just make change with just technology. Like a solar panel isn't going to fix it. You have to have all of these systems coming together to really make change. And it's making our engineering students aware of the fact that you need to know how to talk to people who don't have the same background as you, but are still invested in the same outcome as you. No wonder everybody loves your class. 
Ah, thank you. (laughs) So clearly you're passionate about outreach and about teaching. Why is it important to you? And what do you think is key in enabling us to do more effective outreach and just communication about everything and also about these water issues as well? Why is it important to me and what can we change? I think what's important to me is providing an education and tools to a younger generation who is going to be part of the next generation workforce that's going to be part of creating the next generation of change and creating a world that is habitable for us and the species of this world today and years into the future. That, in a nutshell, is the concept of sustainability, the idea that we are able to preserve our environment and provide resources for our people and for the species on this planet for multiple generations. And I think a lot about that concept of sustainability and why it's a flag that we all wave around, but we don't really know how to address it completely. It is what people in certain fields would call a wicked problem in that it is hard to solve. It takes a lot of brains. It takes a lot of passion. And you don't know if you're going to do it right or do it wrong. History is full of us making decisions that end up impacting communities, people, or ecosystems in positive ways, but also negative ways. And we don't really know whether a decision that we're going to make today is going to work in the future. But we can use our best informed judgment. So the question is, how do we build that judgment? And I think we build that judgment by providing students an open environment in which they can question things, in which they can learn things, in which they can try things in a safe place and see if it works or see if it's not, to expose them to new research ideas that may or may not work, to let them test things out on their own, and to not control them. I think there has to be a lot of flexibility and freedom and space to learn and grow when you're in a university. And my goal is to provide that for all of our students. How do you think we can approach things so that we are providing this open, exploring, learning environment? It's something I think a lot about. It's a buzzword to say a culture of inclusion and I think I like to dissect that and think, so what does a culture of inclusion mean to me? By definition, it means that we ensure that every person of every background is heard in some way. That can mean creating classrooms in which you almost create a rule of listening rather than 
only wanting to be heard. I think it means creating research teams that have students of different backgrounds that allow us to fail and not be reprimanded for failing, but to grow from failing. And it means to embrace growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. By growth mindset, I mean being able to take feedback well, to be able to think about how to challenge yourself, to not try to compete with someone next to you, but learn from them instead and see how you both can grow from one another's differences. I try to do that in my classrooms. I don't know if I'm doing it well or not. You'd have to ask my students. But I do think about every single day how I approach teaching and how I approach approach research and how I approach my students and to make sure that they feel that their voice is being heard or that their ideas are being heard and that they also feel appropriately challenged in a way that they can really grow rather than stay fixed in a comfortable spot. Being uncomfortable is hard. And so you have to think about like, how do you create discomfort in a way that is still going to allow for growth? How do you think we can cultivate the growth mindset, not only in the classroom, but also in doing outreach activities and other things to reach people who may not be in civil engineering or sustainability studies? Wow, that is quite a question. How do we incorporate growth mindset into outreach? I'll give you a little bit of an example. So one of our outreach demonstrations is to build mini water or wastewater treatment plants. Really, it's a stackable filter where you stack materials like charcoal and sand and gravel and rocks and coffee filters and cotton balls and any random scraps. And then you pour some really dirty water through it. And hypothetically, the water that comes out through this series of filters should be cleaner. Oftentimes, the water comes out dirtier. And we realize that there are many things that could contribute to this. Oftentimes, the materials that we use to clean our water are adding dirt to the water. So if we haven't scrubbed the sand the sand is going to leave some residue in the water that's going through and you're actually going to get dirtier water. This is oftentimes frustrating, both for the person conducting the outreach activity because they want it to go off without a hitch and suddenly they have to explain why the water's dirtier after going through a water filter. It's sometimes frustrating for the person attending the activity because they think, what did I do wrong? But I think instead of thinking of it as wrong, we can think through the, why is this happening? Let's deconstruct this filter. Let's run the water through just one material at a time. Do you think that there's something happening in this system that's causing it to get dirtier? What does that mean for large water treatment plants? Does that mean that they can pick up sand off of a beach and use that as a filter tomorrow? Probably not. 
So what does that mean in terms of building a treatment plant? Well, you probably have to get materials and then clean materials. Huh, I wonder how you clean materials. I bet that takes a lot of water and energy too. Oh, and then you probably create a lot of waste. What could you do with that? And it's thinking beyond just the small activity and expanding the boundaries to creating questions and wondering and growing in a different way. And I think that when our outreach uh, facilitators can embrace that growth mindset, they can help the people receiving or being part of the outreach, the students, for example, not feel that failure mindset either, but instead feel a feeling of, whoa, that's fascinating and I want to be a part of that. Absolutely. Speaking of outreach, what is one of the things that you think is most important for people to know about water and how we use it and that would be useful thing for us to teach in outreach or in the classroom? One of my favorite things to talk about is a concept known as de facto water reuse. Have you heard of this? All right, so de facto means incidental. It's the idea that you are already drinking treated wastewater from a water user upstream of you. We talk about the fact that, yes, we're drinking dinosaur pee, and we think that's okay because that was millions of years ago, but you're also drinking treated pee from someone who lived in, say, Santa Fe. And that could have happened last month. It's important for us to understand that concept because it leads to this idea of thinking about one water and the fact that the water that exists on this earth is finite. It goes through different phases and it cycles. So the water that was in Santa Fe may have come from snowpack melting, which came from precipitation in the air. And the way that that water got in the air was through evaporation off of maybe the ocean or maybe some reservoir. And it's a cycle. And then that water that was used in Santa Fe, they took it to a water treatment plant, treated it. People in Santa Fe used it. They peed in it. They pooped in it. They took showers in it. And it all went down the sewage to a wastewater treatment plant where it got cleaned to a level at which it could be put back into a surface water body or a groundwater body and then be used again either by a community there or a community downstream. You are already drinking somebody else's wastewater. That's important for us to know as we move forward into a world where water reuse is becoming becoming more and more common, particularly in the Southwest, or particularly for communities that are downstream water users, there may not be enough water available for us. We may have to use the water that we have again and again. We have the tools to be able to do this safely already, and there is lots of research being done to continue to make sure that that water is safe to drink. It's important for us to know this so that 
when news stories come out about toilet to tap or we created a new system that takes your shower water and makes it drinkable, people don't go, ew, that's gross, never. No, like it's perfectly safe. And it's important for us to realize that that is the way that we all share our water. You are not the first person to step foot in that particular piece of soil. You're not the first person to drink that particular molecule of water. You are part of a shared system. Embrace that. On the topic of water, your research focuses on atmospheric water harvesting. What about your research excites you the most? Ah, you got to my favorite topic. My research team looks at atmospheric water harvesting. This is a technology in which you take water vapor out of the air and you condense it to a liquid. It kind of goes back to that idea that I was mentioning about the water cycle, that the water on this planet is finite. Sometimes it is present within the air around you. It is possible through cooling or through desiccant-based technology to turn that water from the vapor phase to a liquid phase. I think it's exciting to think about this technology in the context of the fact that it could maybe supply water in regions that currently do not have access to piped drinking water supply or areas in which groundwater is not accessible or contaminated. I am excited about answering questions that people have not yet answered in the field that are going to lead us to a better understanding of whether it is truly safe and if it is something that will actually be used and accepted by everybody. Too often we jump to a technology and we say, here it works. I think I like to be a little bit of a realist. And so part of my research team is looking at air quality impacts on water quality. Part of my research team is looking at cost. And I hope in the future to think a little bit more about the social science aspects, about human users using these technologies. Is this something that people want to interface with? Is it going to be worth it? Is it something that is safe in the long term or not? And it's okay if the answer is not. It's important to address that human element. And I'm excited to think about how we approach these complex problems. What have you found so far are the benefits and drawbacks of this system? I will start with the drawbacks and then I'll get to the benefits. It is costly to harvest water from the air. Water right now in municipalities, so cities that are connected to a water grid, is very, very cheap. Should it be that cheap? That's a question for another day. I think water is a basic human right, so perhaps it should be absolutely free. But then on the other hand, cleaning it is an investment, and so there's a cost associated with it. Atmospheric water harvesting is pricey. It's not as pricey as buying bottled water. So if 
that is the market space for it. You have to think about who uses bottled water and can atmospheric water harvesting be an alternative there? Who uses bottled water? Usually after some sort of a natural disaster, you'll see images of people flying in bottled water. People use water or they transport water to remote areas that may not have piped systems. And so therefore you're paying upwards of a dollar a gallon for this water. Just for some context, the water that you get in a city through a pipe is less than a cent per gallon. So you're paying over a dollar versus less than a cent. Water harvesting is way more than less than a cent, but it's also less than a dollar. So it fits in this perfect little cost opportunity space, as some people like to say it. I think that's the exciting part. Now, sure, it's cost effective, but I think the other challenge is maintenance, user acceptance, impacts on climate. All of the social science, economics, policy, politics, chemistry questions that I need to work with other people who have those backgrounds to really think about how we address them. To me, that's what's exciting is that my engineering brain can't compute all of those things. And so working with other people who bring such a different perspective, who make me think about, oh, I never even thought of that. Yeah, that that is something we should figure out before someone ever uses this. That's exciting. One thing that came to mind as you were talking is, do you think it would be possible to do atmospheric water harvesting in a place that is more humid, such as on the coast, and then get it to a place that is drier or rural or that needs bottled water? Or would that make it no longer cost effective at all? Correct. A, not cost effective. B, Building pipelines across lands is never really a good idea. There's so much that would have to go into that. The idea of who lives there, who owns it, who has the right to it, who builds that pipeline, who profits off of it. I don't think that that is a viable long-term solution. It's a it's something that is being proposed in the Southwest as a solution to our water crisis to pipe water from the oceans or from the Mississippi River all the way over here. And I think there's just so many geopolitical and human factors and ecological factors that one would really need to consider. And in that case, unfortunately, no. So water harvesting Yes, is more viable in a humid region. So if you were on the coast or if you were, say, in a region that is prone to hurricanes or tornadoes, this would be a pretty decent technology. If you're somewhere in the southwest where we deal with wildfires or earthquakes or other disasters, water harvesting is viable, but way more expensive because the type of technology that you have to use requires a little bit more energy. And then you start to wonder whether it is something that should be used here. And it really gets me thinking about how there's no one-size-fits-all solution to our water issues today. What works in Canada 
and Canada's massive. So let's just say what works in Ottawa may not work in Albuquerque and that may not work in Portland. A solution for one place may not be a solution for another place. And you really have to think about all the components that go into what makes a, a place a place, the geography, the people, the climate, the ecosystem, all of that impacts where their water comes from, how they use it, how they treat it, and where it goes. How do we consider, make sure that we're considering all those different factors when we are trying to solve these massive issues? That's a hard question, and I don't know if I personally know the answer to that yet. I think I feel very young and novice in my own understanding and learning of the water field. I am excited to learn from people who have been at the front lines of thinking about how to bring all these folks together. It's fun to talk to my friends who are in industry, who work as water consultants, to see how they approach it. It's fun to talk to friends of mine who work at water utilities because they have a different approach. There are people who work on the policy and management side and they have a third approach. And then there's academics who have a fourth approach. I just, I feel like in my, I am in a learning phase of life and I want to remain in a learning phase of life. I don't want to say that I know the answers or the solutions because to be honest, I don't. Right now, I'm working on just how to listen to people, how to ask about creative ideas from one another, and to really think about how we train our students to also be lifelong learners and to not think that just because they have a degree means that they know how to solve the water crises of tomorrow. I think that these are huge problems and it's exciting to, to be fortunate enough to work on it. And it's important to remain humble and know that there's still so much more to go. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that you wish I had or anything else that you would like to comment on? I think it's important at no matter what point in life that you're at, to learn how to communicate with one another respectfully and with humility. Listen, then speak. Don't think that your idea is the only idea or the right idea. Be open to what the world has to offer. Be open to others' ideas because you never know what little piece or large piece you may learn from someone tomorrow who seems so different from you. The world is an amazing place and you have the opportunity to be present here and to learn from the people here and to learn from the past and be a part of the future. So embrace it. Thank you so much, Anjali. Thank you, Jamie. This was so fun. <laughs> it was a pleasure to interview you. It was a pleasure to be interviewed. <laughs> I am Jamie Ritchie, the host, editor, and producer of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening.